Brown, Richard Jones, It's a Lound Down Thing, and Albania Jones, Albania's Blues. So that was the last half hour of music. Thank you for tuning in again with DJ Lamb Chop, and it is time for Living Writers. Please enjoy. I won't get drunk no more, no more. The old refrain it shines with use while you sop your breath in barley wine and mop your. Good afternoon. You've got the Living Writers Show here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yule, your host today. We're so glad to have Rebecca Claren with us. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. We're taping today. It's May 28th, 2019. We're in the Ann Arbor studio. Um, we're glad to have you here. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're glad too. I understand you have some Ann Arbor connections. So, so many. <laughs> At least so a lot of glad. family. Yeah. So glad. And you'll be, are you appearing at Literati as yeah. well while you're here? I love that bookstore. Yeah. Me too. I'm reading there tonight and Emily Stralo, the great local writer, is going to be my interlocutor. Oh, very good. Yeah. That'll be a great event. <laughs> <laughs> Literati is our, our great friend. Everyone there is so good to us. Well, for our listeners who um, don't know your work yet, I'd like to read a little introduction of you, and then we'll have you introduce the book for us. Sounds great. Uh, Rebecca Claren is an award-winning reporter who has been writing about the rural West for 20 years. Her journalism, for which she has won the Hillman Prize and has an Alicia Patterson Foundation Fellowship, has appeared in such magazines as The Nation, High Country News, Salon.com, and Mother Jones. Kickdown, her debut novel was shortlisted for the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. She lives in Portland, Oregon, with her husband and two young sons. And you're here with us today. Yay! Tell us about Kickdown. I, not all of our listeners may have read it, and I'd love for you to introduce it for us. Well, Kickdown is the story of a small Colorado town on the western side of the state. and um, It's a, a ranching community, and the story opens when... The three main characters, for various reasons, have returned home after being gone for quite some time. So two sisters, their dad has died suddenly, and they have come home to try and save their family's ranch. They're in their late 20s. Um, the night that many things go terribly wrong, their lives intersect with an old friend of theirs uh, who is an Iraq war vet and he and the local deputy sheriff. And they're all at the beginning of the book really struggling with who they are and their place in the world. And it's through their relationships with one another and really through the land itself that they come to find more a sense of themselves and peace. Excellent. And how did you how did you come to write the novel? Where did it start for you? In some ways, it started 20 years ago. The first article of any real length that I ever wrote for High Country News, where I was a young staffer, 
um, High Country News, for those of you who don't oh, know. I was just going to ask. Can you <laughs> yeah. explain High Country in News? In the West, it's a big deal in the West. We're big in Japan. It's a big deal in the <laughs> West. Um, it's a it's a publication that covers 10 Western states, and it covers the people and the land and the air and the issues, the economics of the issues in the West. And it's circulated nationally. Um, people, Many people in D.C. who write public policy about the West read it, but... Um, I, so it was a wonderful place for me to start my career because I got to really learn about so many complicated laws and policies and, and understand the culture of the region, which I then just have continued to love and write about for all that time. But the first story, one of the very first stories I ever wrote, I went to the Four Corners region and I was talking to a man named Carl Weston who has died in the last few years. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, we knew something was wrong when the kids started lighting the lemonade on fire. Wow. And, he, and he, the, the kids could light the lemonade on fire because in the ranches around where he lived, there was now oil and gas development that had come. And the development itself had fractured the geology underground and the gas had now seeped into their water table. Right. And so the gas was coming out of their tap when they turned it on and they could light their lemonade on fire because there was so much methane in the in the lemonade. What a striking image. Oh my God. And and I have written a lot about small ranching communities, small rural towns throughout really the country, but a lot in the West that and this was before the movie Gasland came out. It was before New York and Pennsylvania had an oil and gas boom. And, and there was this, these were stories that I felt were very forgotten by most people in America. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to write a preachy novel. I hate preachy novels. So I really tried to bury those sort of ideas about um, the policies, if you will, mm-hmm. and the, the all the economic issues and the environmental parts, like deep in the story. I really think Kickdown is the story of of people and people trying to find their way when they are losing control, Mm -hmm. Um, losing control of themselves and the people they love and their land and their air. But that's where that story in some way started is how do I tell the stories A real sense of these are communities that don't get enough airtime and wanting to share their that story of what it's like to live in a community when you're faced with very difficult choices to make about how to save your land and what are the costs of doing so. Can you tell us more about the reporting you did and what that looked like? Were you living there in in that part of the country? Yeah. So for several years, I grew up in Seattle and I went away for college, but I moved to Colorado um, in the late 90s. And I lived in Western Colorado in in a couple of little small towns for several years, maybe five years or so. And, you know, when you live in the rural part of the country, my little town I lived in where High Country News is based is called Paonia. There's a lot of Paonia. This novel isn't set in Paonia, but there's a lot of Paonia in there. Uh-huh. And you live there and you look up in the hills above town and there's the coal mine. And you smell coal dust in the morning in the winter. And there's orchards that ring the town and ranches all over. And your relationship when you live in a small place is so close to your food and your energy. And now I live in Portland and it's very easy to just turn on a switch and buy my chicken at the grocery store and really that's wrapped in cellophane and not really think about my choices at all. But yeah, I was living in Colorado and I I worked at High Country News and I was an editor and a reporter for them and I loved it. Um, But I ended up wanting to do more reporting and less editing. And so that's what I then moved to Portland to do writing full time. 
And you've continued to cover the environment to some extent in the West? The West, yeah. So I have written about the environment. I have been really attracted to the stories of people that I think are just don't get enough attention or sort of forgotten. And so I've written a lot about farm workers. I've written a lot about, you know, rural Westerners of all kinds, about indigenous Americans. Um, And so the environment is often a part of that, but so has labor laws and education and Mm -hmm. all sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. And as a reporter in that space, I I mean, I was really curious as a reader of the novel, um, how you gained all the knowledge, scientific and and local sort of lore and otherwise that uh, comes out in the text. Is that something that when you started that job at the High Country News, you had a passion and interest in, in in a knowledge base of? Or how did that... How did you learn? (laughs) I think that is the best thing about being a reporter, in my opinion, is that I've just always been baffled that by asking questions, I get to learn new things. People tell me things just because I asked. And so, no, I didn't know anything really about the West and about ranching. And I, but you learn on the job as a reporter and you just, it is your job. That is the job. Right. And ask the questions again and again until you get it and Mm -hmm. make sure you got it right. And so I really reported the crap out of this book. I, people let me ask them all sorts of weird questions like, how much Valium should you take to be weird but not fall asleep? Uh-huh. Um, what does it feel like when a 1,500-pound animal is running at you and hits you in the forehead and in the stomach? Like, And I interviewed people who that had happened to. I was I, just going to ask, did you, did you talk to someone totally. who trampled by a cow? I talked to people who have lost their spleens. I talked uh-huh. to doctors who could talk about what are the what would it really happen who like, did some medical research for me and found um, journal publications about I saw the word splenectomy in your acknowledgments, so (laughs) so I had a sense of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was really, I felt like, I always feel like I'm just, I'm not that creative. I really had to believe something could happen to make it up. I have a friend who's a wonderful novelist who someone was like, did you go to Madagascar? He's like, why would I go to Madagascar? That's what YouTube's for. I can just make it up in my mind. But I felt like, for me, I needed to really understand and and really even I ask people things like I talked to a woman rancher once who I saw recently who was like, I remember you asked me what it smelled like when I was around baby cows. <laughs> She's like, no one had ever asked me that before. But I just felt like I needed. But that image is that olfactory image is in the book, isn't it? Yeah, I think About it is sort of branding. And yeah. I rem- oh, yeah. remember that part at least. Totally. Yeah. And then there was a rancher. Um, ranching family in central Oregon and they invited me out. Um, I'm friends with their niece and I got Mm -hmm. to spend some time on their ranch, helping them feed out, watching them brand cows. And so that was even the term feed out was new to me. I'll be honest. I mean, a lot, a lot of what, um, the sort of milieu of your book was new to me as a reader. I have not spent very much time in the West, just a little, and I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I think that you do a wonderful job of bringing that, um, everyday, experience of being on a ranch to readers who haven't been. Thank you. Did you, did you think about that when you were writing it? Did you think about a reader like me who lives in the Midwest? (laughs) That's such a good question. Who was I thinking about? I think I was just thinking about my characters and Uh really wanting to make sure I was, they have come. It seems very weird to my skeptical journalist brain that my characters have come to feel so like real people. And I just felt this obligation to them Mm -hmm. to get it right. Mm 
Um, but like I fact checked all my ranching stuff. I had a rancher read all of it, make sure it was right. And, mm-hmm. and I needed, because I also didn't grow up on a ranch. My great grandparents were ranchers, but I didn't grow up on a ranch. And so for me, I needed to really, it needed to feel really real for me as a reader too. Mm-hmm. You know, have you since spoken to any of the people that you interviewed in reporting the novel as it were? Yeah, I have. And my favorite feedback has been, I was in Pendleton, Oregon, which is a, ranching community in Oregon and I was doing a reading in this very tough like calm woman came up with a ball cap on and jeans and she said I'm I'm a female rancher and you nailed it and that uh, made me feel like it was all worth it that's so good <laughs> yeah <laughs> good to great. hear this is the living writer show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor and we're speaking with Rebecca Claren who's author of Kickdown her first novel but uh, by no means her first writing. You are a journalist of 20 years, published many times over. Thanks for being here, Rebecca. It's great to be here. I think we might have a song break. We might hear one of the songs that you selected for us. Actually, before we do that, you should tell us about Pilgrim, the Mm. song that kicked off our hour together and why you chose that one. So that's by Dave Rollins and the Machine and Gillian Welch, who is his partner in many things, uh, sings on that. And I don't only just love that song. I love it's Pilgrim. You can't go home. And this is a book that opens with these people coming home and wondering if they can come home. And they really the main characters really struggle with that in different ways. And they they reach different conclusions in the end. And I I think so many of us who have grown up and left the place we we knew and loved. It's a very big tension to come back. And so it has a Western feel to it. Um, those guys have spent lots of time in the West, but that is, but that's why I chose it. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And then we'll hear Real Time Travelers, Little Bird of Heaven. For it. do you want to talk about that one too? Please do. <laughs> I love that. Um, it's a band that doesn't exist anymore, huh. but they, I think, we're from Montana. They have a very old time feel. When I lived in rural Colorado, that's when I found this knew about this band and I was a radio DJ then and I used to play them on the radio on the NPR local station in mm-hmm. Peonia and uh, so I love that sense of the West that they bring that that really is a callback to an older time in the West yeah. well let's hear it great <laughs> The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli. We're here with Rebecca Claren, novelist. Uh, your book is Kicked Down, out uh, late last year, September of 18. 
Um, so one of the things that we were talking about before the break was this sort of um, difference for you between your reporting and your journalism. And now your book is fiction. It's a novel. I would love for you to just delve a little bit into that with us about how that has felt different. I, I can see where it's the same because you've done a lot of reporting for the novel. Um, but these are fundamentally different forms. And- I love that question because that was... I didn't want to write. I could have written a nonfiction book about oil and gas, right? Yes, like you I've could been, have. I've been writing about and it. And here for you are, a yet. novelist. Yeah. And yet I became a novelist. Why did I do that? And it is a question I ask. Writing novels is so hard. It is so painfully for me, for mm. many people I know. For most. So, I think. It's so, oh my God, it breaks your heart again and again. <laughs> but I, I feel like, um, there is something with journalism and I am still a reporter and I am proud to be one, but there is always a space limitation when you write for magazines, almost always. And there's always um, a deadline. You can't escape a deadline when you're a magazine reporter. And, and I have started to feel like what often gets cut. I started to feel like this is when I, the lead up to wanting to write a novel was this frustration by the limitations of reporting that, that never if I did public data um, reporting, the investigative part of my job, the scientific studies, the economic data, that stuff's so important. And I'm so glad that stuff never gets cut. But what gets cut for space again and again is the feelings part. And what happens? <laughs> so true. You know? And how yeah. does it feel when you're worried about what your granddaughter is drinking in her, in the water that yeah. comes out of her tap? And, and you can have a quote of someone saying that. But for a reader to really care about a person that they're reading about, to really know them and be so invested, there's really never space for that. And I know for me, I don't really cultivate empathy. I don't really change my sense of a region or community that I don't know until I, until I care about them, until I have a feeling in myself uh, that is mirrored in the feelings they have. And that's really what drove me to want to write this novel is... For years, I've been at dinner parties. I used to kill at dinner parties. People would be like, what are you working on? I'd be like, this is such an amazing story. Let me tell you. I was in the Mariana Islands. Uh And then I'd be at a dinner party and they'd be like, what are you working on? I'd say a book. They'd say, what's it about? I would say... Uh, feelings. You know? <laughs> and then they would talk to the person sitting on the other side of me. Um, but it's really, to me, what this book is about. So I agree. as a reader, I agree. And I, I wonder how you approach that. Uh, because what, in, in my opinion, what you've done is you've built a beautiful narrative about a family and this relationship, especially between the sisters and the, the men that are in their lives, too. Um, and they're, you know, Lots about family, um, but really you have this North Star of um, environmental justice that I think is there. And I wonder, like, how did you, I guess I was, maybe you've answered this question of which came first, that mm. that North Star of environmental justice or the story. But how did you, if there isn't a first, how did you blend those two to make a novel? Uh, four rewrites. Okay. <laughs> Painful. Um, you said it was painful. Oh, it was painful and so fun and amazing too. But um, I don't know what came first. Probably, I mean, <laughs> I had this moment where I realized that I wanted to write a novel and write fiction, and it was very surprising to me. I didn't know 
that I was playing my favorite dream jobs game with my husband. I thought I was doing him a solid being like, if you could do anything, what would you do? And he (laughs) was like doing it. And then he's like, what about you? And I said, I think I would write fiction and tears came into my eyes. And I had no idea that that was true for me. And so, um, and I, as I said earlier, like I, I didn't want to write a book that I personally wouldn't read. And I didn't want to write a preachy book. I didn't want to write a I didn't want to write a book that was nonfiction about oil and gas. I personally would never read that book. <laughs> that sounds so boring to me. So I, uh, and I, I mostly read novels because I think because I read so much, you know, science and boring, but fascinating nonfiction to, for research for, for my, for my work. work. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it. Yeah. Had yeah. you, at the point when you had that moment of tears in your eyes, had you, written short stories before had you written fiction not since college yeah it had been no effectively no no effectively (laughs) not at all and I think I had because I never went to journalism school and I got mentoring that said you don't need to go to journalism school you can learn it on the job and I I worked really hard and I was very tenacious and I took lots of licks early on and throughout my career, but I, I figured out how to be a reporter without going to school. And so I thought, oh, I'm not going to go to school to be a novelist. Who goes to school? Like, I'll just, <laughs> except for doctors, school. you know? <laughs> so I was like, I'll just figure this out. And, you know, it was, it was very humbling. <laughs> to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, once ever somebody says something is humbling, <laughs> I feel like I want to know more about um, how, like, how long did it take you to write the novel? Because you were learning how to write a novel as you were writing your first one. That's right. So my, I was pregnant with my oldest son when I wrote, I wrote my first draft during my pregnancy and I finished the first draft like two weeks before he was born. He is now seven and a half Uh and he's a reader. Like he can read this. Uh, I hope he doesn't. (laughs) But, um, so, and it took me, it felt like. I felt at some points like I was like had a chain around my neck and part of me was like yanking myself, my other self away across like a burning hot desert <laughs> to because I felt like the first draft wasn't good enough. And so I felt like, well, I either wasted all those that time and this is just a nothing or I double down and I just that felt that way again. And, mm-hmm. and it was very hard to just keep realizing it wasn't good enough and I had to keep going. But I'm glad I did. I feel proud of what I ended up with. You should feel proud. Thank you. Should you. Feel proud. What's so interesting about what you're saying is I think you are telling us that it's that that pressure and that feeling was self-imposed for the most part. You you knew what you wanted and you didn't see it in draft one, right? You didn't have somebody else yelling at you, did you? Not really. I did some mentoring with Karen the- Fisher, who wrote this beautiful book called A Second Country and... um she helped me go back and forth. Like when I did, I wanted some structure when my knowing I was going to be sleep deprived, like when my kid was born. And so I did have a thing where I would send her 30 pages every month and she would send me back feedback. Um, That's wonderful. It was great. It was really great. Um, But I think I felt so much personal pressure. I felt the pressure that I was, I wanted to do this and um, I was felt like I was wasting my family's resources. And also I felt sort of a weird obligation that I could be reporting. I had that skill and I could be doing something that felt really, I believe in it. Mm -hmm. And so to not be doing that 
for a while. And so instead of me writing this novel, I, I did feel a lot of internal. Yeah, it yeah. did feel that way. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that those are the, <clears throat> ourselves are our best <laughs> taskmasters or oh, goal, you know, I think so that mean. that's probably how it has to be. Well, what do you think about this, this idea, which I think that your novel approaches a bit, um, that fiction can really change the world, can, can open people's minds and change their opinions and educate them. Um, that's not, not everyone believes that. And I'm not, I'm not sure how you feel about it. Part of me totally believes it. Yeah. And part of me doesn't at all. <laughs> I mean, part of me, I, I think C.S. Lewis has said that. Joan Didion has said that. People who I love have said, like, we read books to change the world. We read books to understand ourselves. I'm, I'm paraphrasing them. Yes. They didn't say that exactly. <laughs> but um, and I I feel like that has been true for me. You know, I have read books throughout my whole life that have shaped me. And um, I think that can happen. I feel like, oh, God, I can't imagine that my little book could ever change anything for anyone. It's hard to imagine. But I would I would be blown away if if that were true. And uh, and yeah, I. I don't know. I, I really struggle with this with journalism, too. I obviously have a drive to say writing stories. I'm so attracted to stories that I just think not enough people know. Mm -hmm. And that's in this book, too. But I also um, I can't hang my hat on that as like the determiner of success, because it's it's very hard to know. I think what I often my friend who's a colleague and I always say, you know, stories disrupt things if they're good they disrupt things but you don't have an immediate it's not like an a to b very very rarely is mm -hmm. it you read a journalism story or a novel and then there's an immediate impact um right it's disruptive it changes people's ideas and then maybe eventually that the next time they read a story about fracking yeah. the next time or yeah. it inspires them like i've heard years later from a woman who said i read your article it inspired me to start a community group her community group changed the law you know what i mean wow. but like yeah. mostly you don't hear from people even if mm -hmm. that happens and mm -hmm. i didn't really do anything she's the one who did the thing but mm -hmm. i was a little part of it you know but novels do have a, a special way of exploring those feelings and that empathy side of things that i think is powerful or can be really powerful in making change i really hope so and i think we need that now in this moment in history we do you know we do this is the living writer show on wcbn fm ann arbor and we're talking with rebecca claren author of kickdown i think rebecca we will do a song break another one and then perhaps you could read some for us when I'd we come to. back great sound good so we'll hear western centuries way to the world great okay
That was the Western Centuries on the Living Writers Show. And we're here with Rebecca Claren, who's going to read a portion of Kickdown for us, her novel. Great. Do you want to set it up for us, Rebecca? Sure. Just tell us what we're going to hear. So as I said earlier on the show, this book opens with two sisters having returned home to rural Colorado to try and save their family's ranch after their dad has died. And things are they've gone bankrupt. They're facing bankruptcy and they're really struggling. And um, one of the sisters, Jackie, is really trying to keep everything together and be in control of everything. And so poor Jackie has to lose control a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> and this is a, kind of one major piece of that, what's about to happen to her. So she's she's gotten home. She's been out drinking. And she uh, there's some ca- there's a cow that's about to give birth. And she's realized, oh, no, I, I should have been here sooner. So this is her looking at the beginning. She's out looking for the pear, which is the the mother cow and her calf. Jackie rides the four-wheeler across the fields, the sun slipping away, taking with it any warmth from the day. The pair is nowhere to be found. She remembers the time that she and dad got to the birth too late. Four coyotes were ripping apart the calf, only halfway out of the cow, hung at the hips. Blue and pink tissue littered the pink snow. Jackie had panicked, raised her gun to shoot, stopped only by her dad's steady voice calming the heifer, running the coyotes off. He had known to save the cow, to help her birth her dead calf. He had known how to go on from a bad time. Today, after the light dies behind the mountains and the early evening is all shadow and wind, Jackie finally finds Blanca off behind a small hill apart from the rest. She is lying in a pool of mucus and blood. Two hooves stick out of her vagina, the placenta making a web around the calf's legs. The young cow grunts at Jackie to get back, to get away. I don't want to be here either, Jackie says. Blanca grunts again and gets herself up, standing, her tail swinging like she might charge. Don't you dare. Jackie stares at the cow's dungeon eyes and makes herself take big, even breaths, building herself up big to be bigger than the cow. Suddenly, a blue nose slicks out between Blanca's legs. The calf's eyes are glassy. That baby's been in there too long. Jackie needs to hurry. She should have been here an hour ago. Blanca blinks at Jackie, her eyes wet black stones. You aren't your dad, they say. You don't know what you're doing. You're still a little drunk. You'll be fine, Jackie says, not meaning it. The cow heaves and twists along her spine. Dad would rope her and snub her down. The come-along rod is awkward in Jackie's hand. It's a thing she's never used alone. She's mid-crouch, trying to decide whether to wait another minute or get in there, when a fireball, the size of a car, explodes beyond the lip of the mesa. It burns a hole into the darkening night. The cow shudders and groans in the glow. It's like nothing Jackie has ever seen, as if a cloud burst and flickered across the sky. Then the fire is gone. Jackie edges backward toward the mesa, eyes shifting between the cow and the direction of the flare. Far below, a black screen of smoke billows in the place of what was flame. It's the wrong time of day for brush fires, wrong season. Seconds later, another ball of fire erupts into the air. Blanca grunts behind her, and Jackie runs back in time to see the calf slip onto the ground. The thin, milky coat of the placenta is wrapped around its body like an extra suffocating skin. Jackie darts in quick, rips the placenta off the black legs with her hands, and jumps back before the cow knows she's been there. The calf's sleek white fur shines against the hard soil. 
The torn arm's length of umbilical cord, ropey and green, flops across her trunk. This is as it should be, except the ears don't move. The eyes are unblinking. There's no cough and no amniotic fluid out of the lungs. Jackie strains into the wind to see a sign of breath. She jogs across the several feet of space between her and the calf and falls to her knees beside the white bundle. Jackie tells herself that she has been here before. She's fixed things up and the gamble has paid, but never alone, never on several drinks. She stuffs this away. She inserts her thumb in one black nostril. The nose is cold, soft. Then her index finger slips into the other nostril and jerks twice. Another flame bursts into the sky. Blanca bellows three loud notes and looks out her dungeon eye at her baby. Her gray tongue hangs long out of her mouth. Get out of there, Jackie. It's her dad's voice in her head. She puts her hand on the calf's chest. The heartbeat is there. If she can clear the mucus plug, the baby will breathe, and the entire day, the entire winter, will be redeemed. She clamps the calf's mouth shut with her left hand and stops up the right nostril with her right thumb and index finger, puts her mouth on the other nostril and blows, breathes quick and blows again, all the air in her body pushed into that dime-sized hole. One more try. She turns her head to gulp at the air, and Blanca's head is down, ears forward, all 1,500 pounds running at her. Jackie yanks her hand away from the calf and pushes into the ground. There is snow, sky, mud, clover, snow. She is rolling, and then she is not. Blanca whacks at Jackie's rags with the middle of her forehead, bone to bone. The cow snorts and blows her cud back. The sweet smell of clover, the rotten eggs of methane, all the bile of the cow's gut. Jackie's breath is broken glass, her heartbeat a hammer. This can't be happening. This isn't how it goes for her. She moves her tongue behind her front teeth and tastes iron, blood, and the grit of dirt. There is the sky, another cloud of flame. Yellow and black, it rises, like her rooster tail, she thinks, before pain consumes her thinking. Beautiful. Thank you. That's Rebecca Claren reading from Kickdown. Um, So what's happening in that scene, at at first I think um, it, it wasn't fully clear to me uh, what the flames and the <laughs> the other activity, other than the attack from the animal, uh, were. But it's, of course, a very important part of the story that I think adds a bit of almost a psychedelic moment to her painful, <laughs> painful experience. So can you talk about what that was? Yeah, yeah. That wasn't like the Russians attacking or anything. <laughs> um, the fireball is a kick or a kick down it's what is what is what i'm describing there is what the title of the book is and when you drill for oil and gas and this is a very simplified uh take on this but it's like sticking a straw into a layer cake and when you drill down and you release whatever you do to release the gas from the geology underground which can be many things once the gas is released, it, it wants to escape upward as fast as it can. And so drillers put a whole bunch of mud on around the, the wellbore to keep things under control, to keep mm-hmm. things in place. But if they, don't, if they misjudge the amount of mud, if they don't get it right, these huge burps of gas leak out. And, of course, it's very flammable around an oil and gas rig. And so they catch fire, and they, they do make these huge fireballs into the sky like the size of trucks and you can actually get on youtube or you could at one point the this book takes place in a town of silt which is a real town in a i don't know if i call it garfield county but it's a 
a real town called Garfield County, and you can see a kick on the, on the internet wow. in that town and mm-hmm. people watching it. Um, and to me, a book that was very interested about what happens when we lose control, it mm-hmm. felt like an apt metaphor. Yes. So much of the book, again, we, we talked about this before, but much of the book for me centered on this relationship between the sisters, uh, themes about family and expectation and loyalty. Um, but I think for me, one of the characters in the book is the ranch and the, the land, even to some extent, the animals as the passage you just read. Can you talk about that part of it? I love that you noticed that. That was so important to me. And I just think people, I admire people who pick up on that, that the land itself is a character. And I think when you live in the West or really any place, I think many parts of Michigan are like this as well, where there's a lot of open space and you can see a big sky every day and see a big expanse of green and mountains. You have a relationship with that land. It's a part of you. And um, and I, and I felt, and I have had that feeling and I, I wanted to convey that in the book that you're, you're actually interacting with your surroundings in a real way. And of course we all are, even when we live in cities, how noisy it is affects us. But I think you're very aware of it when you live out, out in the land and what the weather is and what's happening. It, it affects you on so many levels. It affects your experience physically. Um, what the weather is or what's happening to your land could affect you economically, too. So um, it's powerful. I mean, you somehow build empathy for the land. This sort of <laughs> oil oh, and I'm gas so uh, stuff is happening to this ranch, which is so important to these women and to their community members, too. Um, and I think that was a really unexpected part of the book for me is to, to feel that. Oh, cool. Emotional connection to I'm so glad. I also felt like I used it as a device in some ways. Some of the characters are very disconnected from themselves and their Mm -hmm. emotions. And so I was able, they aren't people who would be thinking powerful thoughts and insights, but, (laughs) but through the way they see their surroundings, I hope to give readers insight into what they're thinking, because that is a, that is something that they would do. They would Mm -hmm. see um, the land and have a thought about it and, that would tell you something about where they're at emotionally. I think it's really true for me, the character Ray, who is a veteran, um, having been in the recent Iraq war, um, has a, he's a little bit cut off from some very real feelings he's having in his relationships with people. Um, but when it comes to his work on the land, it just works, right? Yeah, I mean, he struggles at the beginning. He he grew up on his grandfather's ranch, which was right next to the sister's ranch growing up. Um, and he kind of stumbles at the beginning, but he really comes alive through working the land. and he figures it out. Yeah, he yeah. does. I found the character Jackie to be in a little bit of a perpetual... Um, struggle between uh, the rural life where she grew up and which she very purposefully left to go to medical school um, and that other life that she has in, I think it's Denver in the book, right? So, um, you know, she's, she's back and forth between the merits of both. And I think one of the things the novel is very masterful at is not taking sides um, in that. Awesome. Do you have a side? Did you? you, uh, How conscious was that? It was super conscious. I really wanted to. I wanted to. My side was on the the like heartbreaking dynamics within families and 
my side was in showing the complexities of that. And so do I have opinions about what I would do in that situation? Kind of. But I, I don't judge. I don't feel judgmental of these very difficult choices that my characters are put in, that I made them be in. You put them in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> and of what they end up doing. And, and that echoes in some ways real people I've met in my, mm-hmm. in the, in the series, you know, in while reporting in the rural West. So I don't, I know I'm hedging here, but I don't exactly have a side. It was important to me not to have one. I didn't, I wanted readers to be able to make their own choices at the end of the book about, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of like you're saying, like, what would I do? That was really the question I wanted people to be faced with. That were them. I think that you do that well. I mean, I think that people, I think readers ask that question and they see the complexities of it. Um, and I wonder if you could, in that vein, speak a little bit more about the family aspect. I mean, the, the notion of loyalty, I think, was very profound in the book, where both of the young women were loyal to their land and to their parents who had passed, uh, but they also were kind of exploring loyalty to themselves. Mm-hmm. And what was right for them? Was that, can yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, okay, so a driving force in this book, the the main question I was holding is what happens when we lose control? I was really curious mm-hmm. about that. And But another way of asking that is what are you the most afraid of? And what are you going to do when that happens, when your biggest fear comes through? And so many of us work out our deepest fears within our families that's that's a that's a classic in America and in the world and and so um and I am a you know part of a family that I adore and I have all this Michigan family now through my marriage to my husband who grew up in Ann Arbor and yet there's all there's just ongoing complexities in families so that was to me just a natural place where we would be exploring questions of loyalty and 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 learning you know, if you live alone, you aren't pushed to consider things about yourself. It's only when you are in a marriage or in a sibling relationship or dear close friendship, those you have to be confronted with yourself and where, where do you stand? When you interact with other people totally. is when you really learn yourself. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking with Rebecca Claren here on the Living Writers Show today. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host, and I think we'll hear another song and then um, wrap up pretty soon. Great. Thank you for being here, Rebecca. Thank you. <laughs> we, we'll hear Patty Griffin, where I come from. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay.
That was Patty Griffin here on the Living Writers Show. Rebecca Claren, thanks for talking with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Amanda. This has been a blast. It's been nice to get to know you and your novel. Thank you. Uh, the novel is Kicked Down. And um, it's, is it fair to call it a Western? Can <laughs> People I? have called it that. <laughs> I think you can call it that, yeah. I want to know more about that because the term Western has such a such a long tradition in film and in novels of being uh, by men and about men. And this novel is, to me, neither. Mm-mm. This is a woman-centric Western in a lot of ways, which I think is a little bit subversive on its face. Did you, um, did you do that on purpose? Or is no. That just what you... I didn't do it on purpose at all. I think just my whole history of loving the West and caring about it and being curious about it. It just was what I was going to write about it. And I went to Smith College and the further I am away from that experience of being at a woman's college, uh, the more I appreciate that. And, And I just think it forged me to see the world through the stories of women. They are the stories I'm the most attracted to typically. And so that was just always going to happen, I think. I don't think there was any choice in it. And it never occurred to me that I was writing a Western. But I have been quite... Really? P- no, not at all. But it was. I've been totally pleased that that's what people have called it. And um, my old publisher from High Country News, who died last summer, uh, Ed Marston, he is was one of the West's best thinkers, in my opinion. And, mm-hmm. and he called it a West, you know, he said it stood in the tradition of our West, our best Westerns, which was mm-hmm. high praise for me. And, um, and, you know, he said something like, you know, who, who are the, the enemies changes. And this is reflective of like the new, the new moment, this new moment in the West. Well, know? it is a classic Western in a lot of <laughs> ways, but it's contemporary for so many reasons. Well, thank you. I love yeah. hearing that. <laughs> How, um, well, how do you define a Western? I mean, it, it sounds I mean, like this this is a label that has been bestowed on you, but not one that you were pursuing. I wasn't pursuing it, but I do love, like, Molly Gloss is such an incredible writer about the West. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I do, I am very attracted to stories about the West and about women in particular. But I think of Western so much when someone says, what's a Western? I think of... Uh, you know, John Wayne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think most of us do. So if I have any part in sort of helping nuance our fixed ideas about the West, uh, I would be, that would be wonderful. Did you meet any women ranchers in your reporting and your research? I did. Tell yeah. us about them. I mean, there are a lot of them out there. And there are different ones who I ended up so the little town Peonia where I lived, I still have many friends there and they helped connect me to some different ranchers who are women out there who I got to talk to and interview. And, um, they just are, they were just so generous here. They are running a ranch and having children and doing a million things. You know, when you run a ranch, you're not just out with the cows. You're also the accountant. You're also the lawyer. You're also, you know, you're doing all the things all the time and throw kids on top of that. And you have five jobs. And these people were so generous to give me their time and share their ideas. And even when (laughs) the questions I was asking, they were like, why would you ask that? Kind of this sort of, here I <laughs> oh, am. Oh, what question? No, I, I, mean, I don't know, but just kind of like a question like, why do you keep going? Mm-hmm. Which to me is 
like I'm dying to understand that. Sure. They don't consider it. It's they an just inevitability. Do, this in is that, who I am. Yeah. Almost yeah. annoyed responding, you know, <laughs> like, well, of course, this uh-huh. is what I, this is who I am. This is what I do. Yeah. I think uh, you were talking before about this notion of things being outside one's control, um, which is a, a theme throughout the novel. But I also picked up on, I, maybe you even described it this way. The sisters in the book have this notion, I think they both have it, that they're to save the family ranch. And so I wonder if there's, um, I wonder how you navigated that idea of them seeking to save something that was really their goal. Is that right? In the beginning of the book that they thought they would save the ranch? Yeah. And I I think it's so tied into their grief for their dad, Uh that their dad has just died. And, and when we lose people we love, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of ways that you, I know I, you know, you try and grasp to keep anything that reminds you of the person you love close by. And they're trying to make choices that are impossible to make. What would their dad do? What would their dad want them to do? They're very concerned with that. And they are at odd. They don't agree on what their dad would want them to do either. So, And neither are either of them in a great mindset to make a decision. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. They're distracted. They are really distracted. They're really distraught. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And then you add to that the pretty severe devastation of the sort of outside influence of the yeah. the oil and gas situation. Yeah, make them throw, throw at them some really yeah. more difficult choices. And being trampled as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jackie had to really lose control on so many levels because she's such a force. She wasn't going to let it go very easily. I think that's a real pivot in the book is when you have this person who's the one holding it together and then she's down mm-hmm. in a very real way. Yeah, I think so. I think if I was going to write a book again, and maybe I will write another novel at some point, um, I would structure it differently. Like I really didn't know what I was doing. And so in a way, like I have this huge changing event at page 50. I don't know if people do that. I think it's weird looking back, but I guess I made it eventually, I hope work. But yeah. I think it works. You do? But I I do think it's rare. I think normally a novel... You don't you you don't have that kind of big pivot until later in the book, right? It should happen. It should quote unquote happen like way later, two page two hundred or something. You know. <laughs> so, are you working on a novel right now? <sighs> kind of. I've um I have a novel idea. I've done like all sorts of outlining, and I know the, the plot structure, and I know who the characters are, and what the central ideas are. But I am a little too chicken to work on another novel right now. So. But I'm, and I'm also just very excited. I have a nonfiction book idea that I'm working on. Oh, can you tell us about either? I can tell you a little about it. Yeah, it it again is a lot is obsessed with this idea of loss of control over land and devastation to land, but in a more personal context. So my great grandparents were Jew Russian Jews who escaped pogroms and came to this country and got free land from the federal government and became ranchers in western South Dakota. Wow. I had an uncle that everyone called Bronco Lou or Lou the Jew <laughs> and like my cousin would clear rattlesnakes from to get to the outhouse in the morning. He was 5. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up with all these stories and I have started to think a lot of like well what are the stories we tell but what are the stories we don't tell in families and I've written a lot about indigenous Americans and it occurred to me in the last few years, 
we never talked about the Lakota who lived 15 miles away, who were displaced. In your family, you mean you never talked yeah, about Yeah, in my that. family, mm-hmm. um, to make space so that white settlers like us could get free land. And so the new book project is a quest to find the descendants of the mini Kanju Lakota who were pushed off of our land and to find out the, the specific families um, that were pushed off and what happened to them and and, you know, try and answer the impossible to ignore a question of what do we do about that today? How do we how do we look at and heal from these amoral policies of the past that I am a recipient? I benefited in many ways, large sure. and small from them. So and that's do you have fa- that sounds fascinating. Do you Thank have you. family memorabilia and so things much. that you can draw on? You do. Yeah, we don't throw things away okay. in my family, which is a problem. <laughs> but it means I have like boxes of photos from the 1916s and like um journal like diaries and letters and i have my grandmother's girl scout card from 1931 (laughs) like they really it's in south dakota in south dakota yeah and they sold the land the year before i was born Mm -hmm. so in the early 70s but um but yeah and you know it's a very complicated it's it's more and more complicated as I get into it more and more. But I got a grant in the fall, and I've been working on it, and I'm working on a book proposal, and I'm trying to get a book deal. So we'll see what happens. That's tremendous. Thank you. So you you're turning. It sounds like you're you're also working throughout a novel idea too. So I, I'm interested in with, with your background with the journalism, and then now the novel. Um, you haven't taken a side there either. <laughs> it sounds like you're interested in both, pursuing I'm, both. Yeah, I am. I mean, what I loved about writing a novel was how I could go to this totally different world and live in it. And, you know, and I was, I had tiny babies a lot of the time that I was working on drafts. So I would be breastfeeding at night, but like thinking about my characters and what would they do? And mm-hmm. it felt like a place for um, for myself to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, and I think most people who make anything can experience this, that you, you lose track of time and you don't know where you are and you, I'm, I think I'm a very slow write. I'm a very fast journalist, but I'm a very slow novelist because I tr- I really tried to think a lot about what's the feeling I want to convey and then write under that feeling, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. like create a spare. I wanted the language almost to reflect the spareness of the landscape. And so I wanted it to be kind of underneath. If that makes it sense. It takes so much time to do that, though. It it's so much oh, more God. thoughtful and yeah. wrenching than it probably probably seems yeah yeah oh yeah it is god so um what are you reading right now or what what do you like to read and what are you reading right now well i love to read all sorts of things i've been reading a ton i just read a great memoir that i loved called um life among the binding B-A-I-N-I-N-G by Gail Poole. And I don't know this book. Tell about I don't it. think a lot of people know about it. I it was it's published by University Press and it's about it's a memoir of this woman who in nineteen sixty seven or something around there, she and her husband graduate from Harvard. He is an anthropologist and gets a his first in the field ethnography job. I'm saying that totally wrong. <laughs> Uh, field work. He's going to do field work in Papua New Guinea. And they go and live among the binding people for a year. And it's a total failure. It's a disaster. But she feels like what she learned, the lessons she learns from the binding and their sort of 
the existential crisis that it invokes in her to be among the people who see the world in a totally different way than Americans do sets her up for her whole life and her marriage. And they, in the end of the book, go back and visit. It's a wonderful book. Oh, that sounds I lovely. I loved it. Um, I read one of the best books I read recently. I've been doing a lot of panels and things. And so I've been reading a lot of debut fiction because I'm on a lot of fiction panels. And there's a, a book called The Fruit of the Drunken Tree by in Ingrid Rojas Contreras that's beautiful and it's set in Colombia in the 80s and these two oh, sisters wow. again uh-huh. and uh, struggling with and it, it's based on the real events of what's happening there in the 80s but again it's a it's a beautiful story about family mm. and I can't recommend it enough it's great great recommendation yeah, thank you, you bet. Um, what I always like to ask to sort of close the show is um, your advice for other writers so I, is that a hard one? <laughs> I think it's so hard. Um, I, I mean, you so, talked a bit about your process yeah. and your, the sort of different ways, but uh, tell so, us what you think. So is it for being a writer, for being a novelist or being a journalist? Because they're a little bit different. That's up to you. Okay. Yeah. I tell mean, us both. I think, honestly, tenacity. You have to just keep going and you have to learn to trust yourself for both, for any kind of writing you do. And I think that has been, I'm 43, I'm about to be 44. That has been a hard one lesson for me. I think I'm still learning it. But how to decide that the story idea I have is a good one, no matter what anyone else is telling me, to believe that I'm going to keep working at something until it's good enough. Um, until it's, it's such a solitary thing to be so, doing. Yeah, and I'm a card-carrying extrovert, so <laughs> it's been very hard for me. And, you know, so I have advice about, like, make sure you're in a writing group. I share an office with three other writers, mm-hmm. and that's been invaluable to me. And um, find your community. Make sure you know who your community is, yes. you know, and get get those people. I've made, I have a, I have a new friend that I made this year. Cause I was like, she just wrote her first book. I'm going to make her be my friend because we're both <laughs> doing this thing at the same time. So that's good. Making people be your friends. Yeah. Basically <laughs> in, in summary. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Rebecca Claren, thank you for joining us on the living writer show. Thanks for having it's been me. Really Amanda. wonderful to get to know you and your thank book, you. the kick down or I'm sorry, kick down. Yeah. I just put a the in front of it. <laughs> people and do I didn't that. mean to. It's okay. Um, Nice to meet you and nice, nice to have to you here. You. So we'll close out the show with Frazee Ford. Yeah, done. done. And I love this song. I love that it kind of, to me, captures, she's in the song talking about a romantic relationship, but to me, it kind of captures uh, some of the characters' moments where they just have to give up feeling like they can control everything and they just are done. But it's kind of in those moments where something new comes into their lives. Done. Done. All right.
swinging slow beam. He's a swinger. Someone stole a kishka, someone stole a kishka, someone stole a kishka from the butcher shop. Who stole a kishka? Who stole a kishka? Who stole a kishka? Someone call a cop. Round and firm and fully packed, it was standing on the rack. Someone stole a kishka when I turned my back. Who stole a kishka? Who stole a kishka? Who stole a kishka? Yashu found the key, 